Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good morning. Good morning. Let me start with two confessions. Uh, first off, uh, confessing a, a little bit of awkwardness at, at plugging, um, recommending to you a ministry for um, whatever the Lord would have you offer on on Friday. Um, I'm I, the thing I talk least about and and hate talking about most is money and offering. So, if you'll excuse the awkwardness that I'm feeling even now, um, but it is a great privilege to recommend to you. Uh, a ministry that I've had the privilege of being involved in for a number of years now called Nine Marks Ministries. And there's a little book out there written by this fellow. He's an okay fellow called What is a, what is a Healthy Church Member? Uh, in the back of it is a little bit of information on Nine Marks. I mean, our basic, our basic premise is that the Lord's church will look like him as his church listens to him. So what we are endeavoring to do with God's help and by his grace is to encourage churches in biblical faithfulness. Um, the scriptures tell us that it's the, it's the church that is the display of God's glory, the display of his manifold wisdom um, to the powers in heaven and on earth. And so Nine Marks is a ministry that looks to provide resources to pastors and church leaders and, and faithful members of churches Uh, to encourage them in biblical faithfulness, in the preaching of the gospel, in cultivating healthy relationships inside the church, uh, in evangelism and missions, and so on. So if the Lord would guide you uh, on tomorrow's thank offering, uh, that's the ministry I would wish to commend to you. It's a ministry that has uh, resources and reach around the world, increasingly so. Uh, It's founded by a gentleman named Mark Dever, who is a good friend and a faithful pastor uh, himself. Uh, If you're interested in more of the resources from Nine Marks, you can find them, uh, for those of you who have uh, web access, you can find them at nine, the number nine, uh, Marks, M-A-R-K-S, dot O-R-G. And there you'll find a ton of things. The the feature which I enjoy most uh, is a series of audio interviews with pastors and church leaders uh, from around the world. So you'll find folks interviewed there like uh, J.I. Packer and um, folks like uh, Jensen from Australia. Uh, just many leaders from around the world, just edifying, engaging interviews and resources that are available. This little book that I had the privilege of publishing with Crossway, What is a Healthy Church Member, is a part of the Nine Mark series of little books aimed at encouraging Christians uh, in their involvement in, in the local church. So... Thank you for the opportunity to share that, and thank you for uh, considering that ministry. Uh, the, the second confession is is um, a little bit of distraction this morning. I am, uh, as you know, pastor of a church, a group of people in the Cayman Islands, uh, right there at the top of the chain of islands in the Caribbean, and this is hurricane season for us. Um, and right now there is a tropical storm, Gustav, uh, which is slated to hit landfall in the Cayman Islands sometime on tomorrow afternoon. Uh, by the time it hits landfall, if the Lord doesn't do something different, it should be a Category 1 hurricane. Uh, about four or five years ago, the island was uh, more or less demolished by Category 5 hurricane, Hurricane Ivan. Um, and many people in the Cayman Islands uh, still tremble deeply when they hear news of a hurricane approaching. Anxiety levels go way up. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it can be a stressful time. Uh, also a time for the church to be uh, a witness and a help. Uh, and so you, you'll forgive me this morning, uh, and, and I hope you will join with me this morning in just a brief word of prayer uh, for the folks in the Caribbean and the Cayman Island. Um, part of me is there, um, wishing I was there with the sheep the Lord has entrusted me with. Uh, even as I'm very deeply grateful uh, to be here with you. So before we go to God's word, let's pray this morning. Lord, we are reminded of our frailty. We're reminded that we are but dust. And we are reminded that you are the sovereign ruler of the universe. Lord, the entire earth groans. Futility, it groans, waiting the adoption of your sons. 
so that it might be renewed. And so that the effects of the fall, O oh Lord, even, even affecting your, your created world, the natural world, would be reversed in the adoption of your children and the, and the coming of a new heavens and a new earth. Our Lord, we're reminded this morning of many places in the world that are suffering from natural disaster. We thank you for our sister Elizabeth who reminded us of the, the great earthquakes that uh, wrought so much destruction in China. Reminded, O oh Lord, this morning of the Caribbean and um, Hurricane or Tropical Storm Gustav that's traveling through that way. Lord, we pray that you would administer your mercy, that you would show your grace, that you would show your power not only in causing the earth to quake and, and winds to blow and rain to fall, but you show your power even in turning the storm, that you show your power in calming hearts, particularly that calm and that peace that comes through the gospel. But we remember, Lord, the Cayman Islands, we remember Cuba, we remember Haiti, we remember those island nations that have been affected by Gustav. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would send your peace, that you would show your power, that you would make your church mighty in those lands. We pray this, Lord, depending upon you, remembering those, Lord, whom you have made in your image. In Jesus' name. Thank you guys for praying with me this morning. Well, on my last trip to the Middle East, I met two young gentlemen from Muslim backgrounds who had recently come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were, they were freshly minted young Christians, and both of them happened to be from strong, conservative Muslim families. One young man had come to faith while attending university in the United States, and the other while away for studies in London. A young man who came to faith in the United States was from a prominent family in Saudi Arabia. One Christmas, he returned home to visit his family. He had no intention of telling them he had become a Christian and that he had been baptized as a Christian. But he'd taken home a few Christian CDs and and a Bible in his, in his bag and sort of stuff in there, hoping not to be found. But one day, his mother went through his things and found his Bible and found his CDs. She called his father and called his uncles, and immediately they confronted him, asked him if he had become a Christian. Trembling, fear, he told me. He told them that, yes, he had become a Christian. His father and his uncles began to threaten him at the least to disown him and threaten far worse if he did not recant, if he did not renounce Christ and turn back to Islam. They withdrew him from school and for about two years basically kept him in exile in another country, essentially under house arrest. He told me how his heart broke, that he had ever denied Christ. He told me how his conscience was sick with grief. After that two years of house arrest, they allowed him to continue his studies in a school in the Middle East, which is where I had met him. And when I met him, he had come back to the Lord. And he was counting the cause afresh of what it would mean to follow Christ. The second man was from a Turkish family. His father was a wealthy businessman, and this man had come to be a Christian while studying in London through a course I'm sure many of you would be familiar with through the Alpha course. And he had come back to the Middle East with the express intent of telling his family that he now followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wanted to meet with me and talk with me and, and gather advice from me about how to exactly to approach that, how to tell his father, a man whom he had heard on many occasions breathing out all kinds of slander and cursings against Christians, how to tell him that he, he had become a Christian. He was sure that at the very least he would be disowned. And he too feared that far worse would be his fate. Well, what do you suppose would possess these two young men with promising futures ahead of them. 
to sit all aside and risk being disowned or worse to tell their families of their commitment to follow Jesus Christ. Why would someone be willing to risk everything, even life, to tell others their love for Christ? One thing, really, that Jesus is worth it. That Jesus has become to them more lovely and more precious than even family itself, than even life itself. Having really embraced Christ, having truly come to know him, he has become to them a far greater love than even the love of father and mother and sibling. And it's that love that we turn to this morning as we consider Matthew chapter 10. So continue our study of of this passage of Matthew's gospel where Jesus is instructing his disciples, his apostles, in their first short-term mission trip, as it were. He's training them for a life of witness, a life of mission, a life of proclaiming the gospel to people, quite frankly, who will not want to hear it, who will not naturally welcome it, and who will oppose them, sometimes in the most violent of ways. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll read as we have been these these previous mornings, Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. We'll read through the end of chapter 10, but we'll settle this morning in verses 32 to 39. Matthew chapter 9, This, this is God's word. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve sent out with the fo- these twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 
It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth. He will certainly not lose his reward. Amen. Well, as we consider verses 32 to 39 this morning, I want us to to continue to look at Jesus, to continue to stare at him, as it were, to to see what's revealed of him in God's word here in Matthew chapter 10. And as we do that, I want us to to sort of meditate on two thoughts. If you're taking notes, these are sort of the outline of my talk. Two, Two points here. First off, that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. We see that in verses 32 and 33. Secondly, that Jesus is the Christian's greatest love. That Jesus is therefore the Christian's greatest love. We see that in verses 34 to 39. Let's take those points in order. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Look there at verses 32 and 33. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Now consider the context of these two verses. Just before Jesus makes this statement in the verses we considered yesterday, he's been talking about persecution and the fear that arises at the threat of persecution. And the temptation there for all of us, because we're frail, because we're human, because it's it's natural to our frailty, is to, in the face of threat and harm, to, to perhaps in fear, cower and turn, to run. And just after this verse, verses 34 and following, Jesus begins to talk about family allegiances and family love. I think what Jesus is is doing here after talking about persecution and the fear that follows and and family affection and the love that attaches us to family affection is he's he's unrooting our gaze from this life and reminding his apostles of what is central, what is critical. That whether we're talking about fear, whether we're talking about love, both of those things can root us as it were in things in this life, as if those things were ultimate. And verses 32 and 33 sort of break into that thinking and Christ raises our gaze that we might look at him again and see how central he is 
in all things. So he says to his apostles, whoever acknowledges me before men, whether in the midst of fear or persecution, or whether in the midst of family love and families who don't understand you, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. It's a startling claim. And this is striking that Christ holds himself out as the mediator between God the Father and men. That as it were, he stands between the Father and all those who would, who would claim to know the Father. So that coming to the Father must, must and can only be done through Christ. What we, what we acknowledge of Christ in this life is what determines his testimony about us. It's striking. A mediator is one who, who stands between, who goes between, who, who arbitrates between two fighting parties. He's the one that reconciles those two, party, two parties, who, who reestablishes a, a relationship that has been broken and characterized by strife and tension. And such is the case with us and the Father when we are lost in our sin. If we are not Christians, born again, united to Christ. The Bible tells us that we are hostile toward God. We are at enmity with God. There is strife between God and sinful man. There is no peace. There is no no conciliation. There is no relationship. It is broken. The only one who repairs that breach, the only one who fixes that relationship, The only one who can mediate between sinful men and a holy God is Christ Jesus, the Son, who stands between us and reconciles us by faith in him. Jesus here claims to be that mediator, the one through whom all men must come. Now, what do you imagine his original hearers must have thought hearing this? imagine went through their minds sitting there on a Judean countryside 2,000 years ago perhaps resting under a slight tree gathering some shade kicking the dust off their sandals a little bit sitting to, to hear this teacher teach listening to a rather ordinary looking Jewish man in his, in his 30s this man's not wealthy or successful. He doesn't, he doesn't hang out with the, the hoi polloi. He doesn't hang out with the rich and the famous, but, but rather with ordinary working men who sometimes find themselves in scrapes with the religious and political elites. What do you think they thought looking at this man and, and hearing him claim to be essential to their standing with God? Staggering, really. And this has been Jesus' claim throughout the gospel. Look, look back with me at Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount. The, the golden thread through this sermon is the centrality and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. He, he just keeps holding himself out as central to everything that happens in the universe and in the life of his people. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, where we we looked yesterday in verse 11 and 12, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Here's a man who holds himself out to other people as someone who is worthy to be persecuted for. And then look at Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18. What does Jesus say? He says, I have come not to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. And then in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, on into chapter 6, the the refrain that Jesus keeps saying is, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Here's a man who reinterprets and expands the law in, in, in his own authority, in his own name. He speaks of God's law as though it's his own. 
And then we come down to Matthew chapter 7, just moving forward quickly in verse 24. In chapter 7, Jesus starts to tell people about the narrow and the wide gates, about the, the tree and the fruited bears and the, and the wise and the foolish builders. And in verse 24, look how Jesus holds himself out to his listeners. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. He's, he's holding out his words as the very words on which people ought to build their lives. If you look back up at verse 21, see how Jesus puts himself between time and eternity, between salvation and judgment. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. You see what Jesus is doing there? In the hearing of his Jewish audience, he is presenting himself as the one who makes the final judgment. They will appear before him. And say, Lord, Lord, he will decide whether he knew them and whether they were his. You see the, the centrality of Christ as the only mediator between God and man. This is staggering. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. There is one God. And one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. And the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 12 would compare Jesus to the, to the Old Testament system of the high priest and the high priest making uh, an offering of atonement for the people, in that sense prefiguring a mediator. And Christ has come now and he has not offered the blood of bulls and goats, but he has offered his own blood, which which cleanses our consciences and frees us to worship God. And, And Christ now has become this perfect high priest. He has become now this mediator, the only mediator between God and men. And the Bible presents Jesus Christ to us. Christ presents himself to us. As the great door between time and eternity. As the great channel through which we must swim. It is through Christ and Christ alone that, that man may leave this life and leave this life of sin and enter into forgiveness and the love of God and the grace of God and an eternal life of joy in his presence. Well, what are we to make of such a claim? What are we to think about this? You know, this is big. This is huge. This is gargantuan. It's staggering. It's, it's biggie size if you're one of those folks who, you have Wendy's here, fast food? What are we to make of this claim? In Jesus' view, it's clear, it's obvious that we must embrace this truth and embrace him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is, this is Christ's words to you. Embrace him. Embrace this truth as the one who, who can bring you to God. Who can take you from a hostile, separated relationship with God, which will in the end only result in judgment and bring you now to, to God's forgiveness, to his mercy, to his grace, to his love, to his joy. And trust me, you need all of that, my non-Christian friend. You need God's grace. You need his mercy. You need his joy. You need his love. For every other love and joy you will find temporary and fleeting and unsatisfying and completely unable to hold the weight of your soul. Only Christ has shoulders broad enough to carry that weight. And only he offers joy and love deep enough to fill your 
soul. You know, the world's view is that Jesus' claim is one claim among many. And many in the world would, would, would sort of speak of their respect for Christ as a good teacher or, or a wise man misunderstood. But a writer from this part of the world has helped us understand why that's not an option. Your own C.S. Lewis tells us that when we look at a statement like verses 32 and 33 coming from Jesus, there really are only three options. We may consider him either a liar, someone who knew the truth but misrepresented it intentionally and therefore criminal, or a lunatic, someone who was out of touch with reality. In Lewis's words, someone on par with a man who thinks himself a boiled egg. Well, we must regard him as a Lord, as the Lord. There is no other way. We cannot sort of try and split the middle ground and say, here's a good man and a good teacher who is misunderstood. No, he is either the Lord, as he claimed, and the only mediator between God and man, or he's a liar or a lunatic. My non-Christian friend, those are the options before you. And I assure you, Christ is neither liar nor lunatic. He is Lord, the resurrected Son of God. And he is coming again in glory and power. Believe on him now. Repent of your sins and trust in him. Well, Jesus' claim cannot be mistaken. It is better to suffer persecution and rejection while acknowledging him than to enjoy popularity in this world and be rejected by God for eternity. Consider the trade-off. Popularity in this short life, acceptance with men in this short life, but an eternity of judgment? Or ridicule and persecution in this short life? and an unending life with God. Christ sets before us this day cursing and blessing. Choose blessing. Choose life. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. That's our first point. Our second point is that therefore Jesus is then the Christian's greatest love. We see that in verses 33 to 39. Jesus begins this section also with a striking, a striking comment. Do not suppose, verse 34, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What a provocative statement. Well, here's one who is, who is called in Isaiah the Prince of Peace. And here's one whom the angels proclaimed would bring peace and goodwill to men at his, at his birth. And Ephesians 2 tells us that he himself has become our peace. What is this talk of a sword? I think those other passages speak primarily of his bringing peace between his people who believe on him and with God. But here he has in view, as the rest of the, the section will show, our relationships with, with others, human relationships. And in those relationships, even in the most intimate of relationships, loving Christ is more akin to a sword that severs and cuts and divides even biological kin. Now, this is not a sword of aggression. It's not the sword of mercenaries and militiamen and terrorists. His kingdom is not of this world. And so we don't fight. Our weapons are not carnal, spiritual. There's to be no Peters lopping off ears in this kingdom. There are no Sauls arresting and jailing Christians. There are no James and Johns calling down fire from heaven to devour enemies. Well, this sword, this sword is the sword of truth. This sword is the God's word. It is the gospel. And this is the sword, as we said, that cuts through human relationships. So Jesus says in verse 35 and 36, For I have come 
to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Recall that young Turkish man that I spoke of earlier in the introduction coming home to tell his father that he now was a follower of Jesus Christ. The sword was about to enter that household. Or that young Saudi Arabian man essentially jailed by his family. His mother, his father, his uncle's hearts turned away from him in anger. The sword, the gospel, was in that home. The mission of Christ was being fulfilled. He was turning his people to himself. And in the process, turning fathers and mothers against their children. And sons and daughters against their parents. Just yesterday, I got an email from a young sister in the church back home. She's been a Christian for uh, maybe about eight months now, and she is, she is zealous, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. All the world is sparkling new to her. And, and she, she loves the Lord. And, and already, she is a passionate Evangelist, so so I'm convicted as a pastor. I'm like I got to keep up with her. You know, she, you know, I'm the pastor. I need to I need to be a model, and and she's just good for us as a church. She's injected life into the church, and and she was home for vacation and spending time with her family. She's from uh, a nominal Roman Catholic background, and she was joyous about the opportunity to go home and share her life, her new life in Christ, with her family. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been emailing, corresponding. Because the reception she got was not what she expected. The entire family, as though one ton of bricks, just descended upon her in anger and rejection, in argument and strife. And she wrote to say that she had had a civil conversation with her father and talked at length about the gospel with him. And she didn't recognize even a hint of anger in their conversation. But, but since that conversation, he stopped speaking with her. Her husband is not a Christian. She's returned home with her husband. And, and in speaking with her husband about things, her husband's comment to her was something along the lines of this. Your father has invested all this money sending you to, you know, a Catholic school. And, you know, these are the things that he holds true and dear. And, and he's probably hurt that you've, you've rejected those things. And, and he looked at her and he said to her, he said, now, if, if, if my father were to be hurt by my turning to Christ, I would not follow Christ. He would choose the love of his family over the love of Christ. And they continued in the conversation and he, he looked at her after a while and he said to her, he said, um, if you had to choose between me and Christ, who would you choose? And you can imagine the heart of this young woman. Two precious little children. Happily, joyfully, in love with her husband and married to him. Having to say to him, it would be no choice. I would choose Christ. All over the world, we don't have to go to the Middle East. We can go down to the Caribbean, here in Northern Ireland, in, in places where persecution is not known. But Christ is inserting into family relationships a sword, bringing not peace, but alienation, estrangement. And it's because of him. It's because of who he is. It's because some, by God's grace, have come to see him in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, in all of his crucified love and resurrected power, and their hearts cry, yes, this is my king. This is my peace. This is my savior. This is my beloved. And they roll over and on their pillow right next to them is one who does not share that love. Who does not share that praise. Who looks upon Christ and esteems him stricken and smitten. Who do not love this savior. 
whose eyes have not yet been opened. And this is as Christ knew it would be. And the question for all of us and the question for persons in that situation is how do you endure that? When we go out onto the mission field, when we go out and do the work of evangelism, this is the life that we're inviting people to. There's a certain strand of teaching, a certain representation of the gospel, which makes it out as though, yes, if you come to believe in Christ, all your problems are fixed and everything goes away and you'll be healthy and wealthy and and boy, it'll be easy street. I trust we see Jesus didn't say anything like that to his apostles. Oh man, in many ways, when you follow Christ, your troubles begin. But they're the right troubles. They're the troubles that come from knowing and serving the one true God. From embracing the truth and coming to Christ. Well, this is what we invite people to in the gospel, in the work of missions. This is, this is what we call them to experience in the name of Christ. How will they do that? How will we do that? How will we help those Muslim men and women who leave their families to follow Christ? How will we help that Hindu man or woman, that Jewish man or woman? How will we help that man or woman who culturally grew up in a family that was atheistic or agnostic or just plain worldly and uninterested in Christ? Well, one obvious thing is then we must become their families. No man has left brother or sister, mother, houses or lands, and not in this life received 30, 60, 100 fold. That's the Lord's teaching because, because the Lord makes of us a new family. He makes of us the brothers and sisters that we are, we are meant to be, we are meant to have. He, he plants in his church, in his body, in the household of God, in the family of God. A love far surpassing even the strongest natural loves. We are to be that family to them. We are to be that home of peace. That they are to know. And more than that, we are to be and we are teach them to be. We are to teach them to be more in love with Christ than anything else in this world. I mean, that's what Jesus is holding out for us in verses 37 and 39. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what true conversion and discipleship looks like. An all-consuming love for Christ. Christ being our first love and and no rivals. He being to us the, the greatest treasure, the greatest pleasure, the greatest joy, and unsurpassed and unrivaled and incomparable love. Anything less than that, as Jesus describes it here, is not Biblical Christianity. Notice what he says in verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We tend to, as it were, make peace with the world. To confess Christ when it's convenient. We tend to try and balance our love for Christ with our love for the world, with the family. But Christ isn't calling us to balance sort of equal parts love for him and love for other things, other people. He's calling us to imbalance. He's not calling us to moderation. He's, he's calling us to an, an exorbitant and a consuming love. He's calling us to love him more than anything else. 
And notice what he says here. He, he doesn't say that, that he is worthy of our love, that we should look at him in such a way as to, to sort of figure out whether or not he's worthy of our love. What he says in verse 37 is whether or not we are worthy of him. It's not Christ who has to prove himself. He did that on Calvary's cross. He proved his love. He proved his worth. He proved his value. He proved himself as a mediator and a savior. His worth is not in question. What's in question for the non-Christian world is whether they are worthy of him. And if we love other things more than him, we prove ourselves not to be. And notice, anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. There's no way to be worthy of Christ and live a life that's not patterned on the cross. We must take up our cross. We must enter into his suffering. We must enter into this horrible, unspeakable shame which, which was nailed to him and follow him. So as we follow him, he speaks to us of our worthiness to receive him. This was the Apostle Paul's example, wasn't it? We'll conclude looking at Philippians chapter 3. Consider the Apostle Paul's life. We may stagger at Paul's life when we consider him as a missionary. I, you know, one of the things that it would be easy to do as a preacher is to say, look how great Paul was, now be like Paul. And most of us, if you're like me, you go, who can be like Paul? What, what, what was that? What, you know, Paul, this man who, though he was beaten and drug outside the city and left for dead, he, he gets back up and walks right back into the same city and continues on his ministry. This man who was shipwrecked and lashed and, and, and wrote these beautiful and glorious letters. Who, who can be like Paul? And yet Paul teaches us something about why he was like that. Philippians chapter 3, again at verse 4, second half of verse 4 there. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. In worldly terms, Paul was the man. He had reason to boast. Verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ. See what Paul is doing. He's looking at the world and his, his old life and he's saying, well, I look at the world and all that I had and it's loss. And I look at Christ and I think gain. Give me, give me all the world. Give me, give me all the titles, all the accoutrements. Give me, give me all the success. Give me all the money of the world, all the, all the possessions of the world, all the status of the world until I'm, I'm burdened down and can, can hold, hold no more. I would drop it all. For Christ, who is gain. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Look again at, at verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul endured whippings and hardships, shipwrecks, jailings, persecution, and slander because knowing Christ surpassed it all, was more glorious than it all. Knowing Christ was his one ambition to delight in Jesus, to delight in the Savior, to immerse yourself in his love. 
That's how Paul sustained his missionary zeal. That's how we are to sustain ours. Paul is not unlike us in that regard. And this kind of delight in Christ is the inheritance of every Christian. And it's how we do mighty things in the name of God. By loving Christ more than everything else. Counting everything else as loss compared to him. It's a wonderful profit and loss sheet. It's a wonderful balance sheet. To have Christ and lose everything is to gain everything. And this is why we we go. This is why we pray. This is why we give. That the world might know this Christ and marvel at his love. Might come to know the only mediator between God and man. And be satisfied in him and him alone. Let's pray together. Lord, we look at your words so challenging and piercing. And even again, we feel the frailness, the weakness of our flesh, but our hearts cry, yes, we love you. We delight in you. There is nothing, O Lord, that compares to you. We have found our life in you. And we are happy to have lost this life. For this life is passing away. It is but a vapor. But life with you is eternal and joyous, indestructible and unshakable, imperishable and pure. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want to know you and share in the fellowship of your suffering. To come to know the power and the glory of your resurrection. And we commit ourselves to you afresh. Some of us, Lord, will will lose family to live for you. But we confess you are worth it. Some of us will lose possessions to live for you. But, O Lord, you are our pearl of great price. We sell it all for you. Some of us will enter into unimaginable hardship to live for you. But these are momentary and light afflictions compared to the glory we shall share with you, the glory which you promise to your people. We look now to you, our one mediator, and we declare that you are to us more valuable than anything this world can offer. We love you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.